Usually the, the, the rule of thumb is that we publish, we have a very careful with anonymous sources. I think the bar that we set is that if, if the source is has direct knowledge of what's happening, that is usually credible, right? Like if the employee receives a message from the CEO about that's credible. Or if it's something like hearsay or this person hears something from that person, we have a lot more careful with those. And yeah, broadly speaking, that's how it works. There's a very fine balance between doing things properly and obviously trying to make sure that you've got this lead and you actually turn it into the story that it should be. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. Of course, today, the format is going to be a little bit different. And I have been thinking about doing a roundtable with two well-known editors in the Southeast Asia region or even Asia-Pacific region. I have John Russell, currently the editor of the Ken Southeast Asia and Terence Lee, the editor of Tech in Asia, to join us for today's conversation. So what we're going to talk about today is on media coverage in Asia-Pacific. Terence, this is your first time on the show. Why don't you give us an introduction of yourself? Yeah, hey guys. So I'm Terence, Chief Editor of Tech in Asia. I started doing tech journalism since 2011, so right out of college. Before that, I was heavily involved in covering politics and I think tech is, I would say, my calling, right? So I've been covering tech close to 10 years, joined Tech in Asia in 2013. And yeah, these days I manage a team of 20-something people. So Tech in Asia, we cover tech, obviously. Uh, emphasis on Southeast Asia, I think that's where we're really strong at. So we do anything from analysis to profile stories, news, investigative, come to us for all things tech. The disclaimer before we start this conversation, because we're going to touch a lot of very interesting and profound questions that a lot of people would have in their minds. And it's inspired because of a couple of Twitter conversations you both have on media coverage. First of all, I just want to get a disclaimer off the way. I do have ownership of Tech in Asia indirectly. And John and Terence today do not represent their respective media outlets. And we are just here to have a conversation on media coverage in Asia Pacific. So I wanted to start off this conversation by first going into your experience, given that both of you have covered the Asia region for relatively a decade. What do you feel have changed over the course of the decade? Have both the corporate communications and the press become more sophisticated in the region? Maybe uh, we, to start off, maybe John, you want to go first? Oh yeah, so thanks for having me on this chat. Super interesting. You know, I think it's a topic that probably doesn't get covered that often, but it's, you know, from our take, as you say, we've both been writing on Tech and Asia for 10 years. Interesting stuff. So what's changed in the last 10 years? We could answer that question for a whole day probably because I think everything's changed, right? But I think the most important stuff that you're seeing, the most visible stuff, there's a whole bunch of companies here that are local to here, which if you look back 10 years ago, it was only international companies that were here. So we have local companies here, whether it's Grab or Gojek or other sort of early stage companies that are coming through. There's a whole bunch of funding that's here too, which I think wasn't the case previously. So I think startups, and I remember obviously you, Bernard, had a company too, right, previously. I think it's hard to get capital then. I'm not saying that it's easy now, but there's much more money that's out there. So if you're a decent founder who's done things previously or your idea is good, you should be able to raise money more easily now than you could previously. And I think those are the kind of catalysts that have really changed everything, right? So there's belief that companies can come from Southeast Asia. I think if you look at how people view folks working in tech companies now too, I think it's changed. Like sort of 10 years ago, maybe there was a stigma in some countries where your family wanted you to work 
for a big company or a company that they knew and you'd worked there for 30 years. I think that's kind of changed now. And I think especially in Singapore, Indonesia, because they have seen success stories. So there is an element of family pride, like you're starting a company and that you're raising capital. I think that just didn't exist previously. And I think there are some countries that's still not the case. Like for example, Thailand, where I am, like is there's still a lot of stigma around being a founder. I know founders who have raised money and their families start asking them, like, when are you going to go work for this big business? But I think in a, overall, it's clear that there is a lot of change that's happened and some countries are further down the line than others. But I think it's moving in that direction. You can see there's loads of firms from outside of the region now that are taking a look at Southeast Asian companies for the first time. And I think that was the thing that I think Terence would probably agree with me that five years ago, even two years ago, that wasn't a thing that we ever saw. Everyone always said, oh, the US firms are coming, the Chinese firms are coming. And we always thought, yeah, okay, where are they? And I think now's the first time that you can actually see that there are actually deals that are going on and there are firms that are actually quite keen on this region, which, again, was a thing that people we talked about before, but is only really the case now. Terence, what about you from the tech in Asia? Do you see the evolution of the corporate communications and also the press in the way they cover tech companies have changed as well? Well, 10 years ago, the, the scene was tiny. Right. There was the good old days where you could just put everyone in one room and the unicorns today were, were just startups back then. So it's definitely evolved. So speaking from, I guess, the media and Copcom's perspective, it's definitely gotten more sophisticated. Definitely a lot more media, right? Covering just Southeast Asia can be a good example, obviously. And along with the existing players, along with your big guys like Nikkei and, and so on. Just a lot more emphasis on Southeast Asia as a whole. I think China and India as well. And if we talk about Copcoms, I think more PR companies focusing on startups and tech. Everyone's just a lot savvier, right? So I think the journalism in Southeast Asia, in Singapore especially, is still pretty mild. I think we just compare China and India, publication more hard hitting. So I think someone's telling me that journalists in Singapore are just nice. That's to kind be of fair, fun. Singapore has a very strong defamation law that is actually more pro to the person suing for defamation and libel as compared to a lot of other countries out there. I think some of the Southeast Asia countries, for example, Malaysia also have similar legislation as well. And the other thing that I thought was interesting in, with the, uh, respect to China and India, you're starting to see a lot of big data investigative reporting. For example, the one on Lucking Coffee to pull off that kind of big data sets to work out that the company is actually submitting fraud account statements by scanning almost 900 outlets. I really cannot figure out how they managed to pull something like that off. But I want to go a little bit deeper into the newsrooms that you have. And I think the way of reporting has changed a lot because now people are also doing investigative reporting about a company or maybe something that happened. Maybe a company is maybe committing fraud or doing something bad to their employees. These stories now get thrown out into the public. For within your teams and in building, managing your teams, how do you establish the mechanisms, for example, from somebody providing you a source, researching a story, publishing a story, and then dealing with the backlash from the published story, from the people who think that they're the victims, or even the people who say, I can give you more information on such. Terence, maybe you have a little bit of experience on that? Yeah, usually we get tip-offs, right, anonymously to people we know always tipping stories to us. I think then we have to filter those. And after we, we covered that harsh Dalau story, the Forbes 30 under 30 guy, like we, we, we get messages telling us, hey, this is the next harsh Dalau. They're not, right? I think we need to have some discretion. And, and then, then comes the hard work of just trying to figure out once we identify this potential story, we then have to 
just reach out to as many sources as possible. Say we were looking into a company that laid off some employees. So then we you know we would go to various sources, whether they are ex-employees, current employees, and just try to find out uh, what's happening. Usually the, the the rule of thumb is that we publish. We are very careful with anonymous sources. I think the bar that we set is that if, if there's something that if the source is has direct knowledge of what's happening, that is usually credible, right? Like if the employee receive a message from the CEO about that's credible. Or if it's something like hearsay or this person hears something from that person, we are a lot more careful with those. And yeah, broadly speaking, that's how it works. And obviously, we have to reach out to the company for comment, give them Apple time. We try and manage their emotions. Uh, obviously, you know, we understand that no one likes seeing a negative story about the company go out. So we have to deal with that. We we'll try and be as fair as possible uh, with sensitive stories, but we have to be extra careful in editing and really scrutinize every word to make sure that's valid. So. Like sometimes tempting to, to come up with like some clever pun of wordplay, but we have to weigh that against, okay, what's this really saying about companies? This fair. So yeah, then we publish. There's usually some blowback of some kind, right? So say we cover layoff and the CEO, whoever it is, will reach out and say, hey, this is not fair. This phrasing's wrong. This is not accurate. When then we look at it, we're making a fair request. We make the change. If it's, we feel we didn't do anything wrong, we'll stand our ground. Yeah, so, so that's the usual process for us. John, what about you? I think you probably would get a lot more people sending you messages when, you know, something is negative. How would you deal with it? And so what's the process like yet? Yeah, I think pretty similar to Terence, right? And obviously, like, technology has been around a long time. Like, ever since I started writing in, I don't know, 2010 or something. So I think and you guys have an incredible brand and, and you do great work. So obviously, you get a bunch of uh, tip-offs. So for us, it's a little bit harder because when you in the region under two years old so i think we do get the same we get a lot of, a lot of tips and then the funny thing about tips is you go through the process and you vet the tip and most of the time it doesn't really come off because most of the time it's a bit too good to be true or maybe there's something that's there but it's not really as as much as the person who's sending you that tip thinks it is right and then so you let that tip go and then you the interesting thing is you see somebody else picks it up and they publish that story as an actual story and you think to yourself did i miss this or, or did we maybe not look at it hard enough or maybe there's not anything actually there so that's one thing that's interesting is like tips to uh, circulate among press i think that for us like we try to hire people who are curious and i think the only way that you can find these stories apart from getting tip-offs is by just talking to people so most of our reporters we encourage them to go speak to people who are, who are sources or people who are in in companies and not to find those kind of stories, but more like to see what's happening on the ground, what are the trends, what what are the stories that you can do. And I think as a byproduct of that, you sometimes hear about tip-offs, right? And it's funny because sometimes they can be just the, the smallest thing that somebody's heard, right? And you think to yourself, is it or isn't it something that I could do? And then you talk to somebody else and then suddenly you realize, oh shit, like four people have said this thing to me and it's actually huge. So oftentimes it can seem like a very small thing. And I guess there's a very small crack in the dam, you probe it a bit and then the whole thing comes falling down when we've done sort of big stories, like it's been like that, right? Where oh, I've heard this once, which I think is interesting. I think like, what Terence said is very accurate, very similar process. I try not to rely on undisclosed sources, but it is hard because obviously people who are in companies or been around companies, they do worry that they're, if you put their name behind something, there's going to be some kind of problem for them further down the line. So you have to weigh that too. But yeah, I think definitely this reason is definitely, people are still quite sensitive. I think having done stories on other companies in other parts of the, of the world, like they tend to just think like, oh, let the story go and then we'll figure it out later. But people here get take it all very personally and it's never personal. It's only like a job and, and but they get very upset and they sort of call you names and they ring you up 
shout at you. But ultimately, that like that's our that's our job. So we're just doing our job, and we try to give companies at least two days notice before we do a, a sort of story, and we try to run the bits in the story past them first, so that they know. So we basically we want to avoid a situation where a story is published. And they read it and they think we didn't know about this isn't true. So we try to take the bits that we know are sensitive and like give them a chance to answer them. But still, it's always the case that you give somebody three days and they don't answer you, publish a story, and immediately they just boom on the phone with you. So I think that's normal. But yeah, I think people in this region, they I guess it comes with, with more stories, but they could realize that one story is just one story. And um, and frankly, like if it wasn't us or it wasn't Terence, it would be another person, right? So it's never kind of personal, right? Ever. When when I see a message from the can and say this is the story here that facts, do you want to respond to it? You give two days, so I have to respond to you within forty eight hours. We try to give at least two days. Yeah. yeah. Terence, how about Terence? How about you? How many days will you give? It depends. So if if something for us, we at least a day, at least a working day. If it's some urgent story, but if the person says, "Oh, I need another day," so we are pretty flexible about that. So. I think it's less about how many days, but more making them feel like we are reasonable. <laughs> like we're not gonna be like one day, two day, and, and and you have to respond or we'll publish. I've I've had horror stories, right? Of you got two two hours to answer us, and it's just really unfair to do that to to a company. And I don't think that there's any story unless you're talking about like sort of Facebook leak files or whatever that really warrants that kind of approach. It's such a negative way to work. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, John. I, I think it sometimes it's also about that relationship, like just yeah, just making people feel like they are treated fairly. And I don't mind losing some scoop over this, and it's fine to me. Yeah. There are two things that actually sprang up from the conversation here. So the first one is on fact checking. You give about one to two working days for the company or the CEO or some other CCU executive to respond to the story. So how does fact-checking work on your end to ascertain, okay, these are the facts we're going to send to you. Some of them may be very sensitive. How do you check those facts? I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. You want to go first, Terence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, I think, I'll try. I think it depends on what the fact is. And generally, I think this saying, like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, something like that. So obviously, we go to the extreme, right, and talk about, sexual assault or really serious stuff, a fraud, then that would require like a high bar for us to be able to publish anything. Obviously, in such cases, we want the source to go on the record and that helps. Yeah, so that's like the the extreme. Like if let's say someone makes a police report about something, then we can go and report that because the matters with the police and it's sort of public or if there's a lawsuit and all the information's in the, the legal document. So that I think is important, um, evidence. So the more serious the allegation, the more evidence you need. So again, if we are talking about fraud, we can't just rely on this person has to be true. And, but to be honest, very few people can reproduce such proof so it's just not a story that you read about a lot and then you have the the middle group things that are less so like workplace culture issue the ceo is an asshole and things that maybe wouldn't get the company into trouble so much so there there's a bit more wriggle to rely on anonymous sources yeah so that's my take on it john how about you 
I agree. Yeah, I think the burden of evidence is always on you if you're making some outrageous claim, right? So whether there's a document or something like your classic one is like company burn rates, because ex-employees, you have to remember that an ex-employee, like it's great that they're talking to the press, but they're doing it for a particular reason. And you just have to make sure that they're not they haven't got an axe to grind. And so I think stuff like anything based on opinion, for example, my CEO is an asshole. I think everybody's had a moment with their CEO where they get frustrated and they're like, this guy's an asshole. So you could capture that moment and use that as evidence that person is an asshole. But so I think it's much more like if a lot of people are saying very similar things, then you can figure out there might be something. But yeah, definitely we like documents, we like pictures. But I think these stories are, are very hard to do and they don't just fall out the sky. So it is rare. And I think because of the, the, the nature of how we work, we just publish one story per day. If someone does have a really juicy story that they're working on, then we would try and work on that as a longer term project. So not try and do it in a week or in two weeks, but keep it on the uh, back burner. And I think we've seen more and more where we've had those stories and we know that other publications like Tech in Asia or others know it too. So that's where you're like, you know, oh crap, like we need to move this story forward, but also do it in the right kind of way. So we're not, you know, cutting corners and saying things that aren't actually trying to balance between doing things properly and obviously trying to make sure that you've got this lead and you actually you know turn it into a story that it should be it's also about triangulation right if one person says that the ceo is an, an asshole probably that there's some uh, grudge but it may not be true but if everyone's saying that then it gives more weight to to that so we take that into consideration as well I want, I want to get to the other part of the conversation which is the ethical guidelines to the story itself are there any kind of standards, ethical guidelines from the newsroom point of view? We talk about just now fact-checking is one piece of it, right? Then there is the second piece of it is the verification and the validation piece. Now, granted that we are all human beings, right? We talk to a lot of the comms sometimes. They want to present a different point of view. And obviously, once they heard wind of it, they're just going to try to muscle you back and say, hey, no, this is not true. Come on. Can you give me more time to validate the story? There is some friendship, of course, between comms and press rooms. This is nothing new. I think that the question is more of the balance. What is the right form of engagement? I think that is the more important part I want to tease out in this conversation rather than saying, oh, you, you are friendly to X, Y, Z. No, that's not a conversation I want to have. I want to say, what is the right form of engagement between both the people telling the story and the people reacting to the story? It's never personal. So like I do know, and you get to know people, right? After five years, 10 years, and we used to go meet people in, in person prior to the pandemic. So you do get to know people, you have a beer with people, but it is never personal. So you just have to sort of put on your work hat and just even basic, and this sounds obvious, but you send a company like 10 questions via email and you wait and then you call them afterwards. You don't just ring them up. So I think your question is about how you deal with mixing the business and personal, right? I think it's just a job. And I think also you think about it like this, if if you're running a publication and you let PR people tell you what you can write, then you're probably not doing it properly. And obviously there is a boundary. You don't want to write something that's wrong and you want to get it right. So I think, again, the burden is just on making sure, as we both said, that you have enough sources, that you have documents where you need it, that sometimes you hear some claims that sound outrageous and you think to yourself, wow, this would be an amazing thing to add to our story, but maybe actually it's not right. And you can always run it past the, past the company and see if they, you could ask them, like, is this thing really true? And if they're smart, they won't answer. But if they answer, you'd say, yeah, that did happen. Then you know that's actually been a thing that's taken place. But I think, yeah, it's much more about just making sure that you've got stuff right. Because basically you don't want to be found that one that you've changed your story because a, a company has told you something and they've made you change it, or two that you've written something that's outrageous that's just not accurate so it's finding that that ground in between the 
those two kind of t- scenarios, I guess. Yeah, pretty much similar to John. I think it's just having that boundary from day one, you know, making your stance known that certain things you don't compromise on and that you're, you're writing for the reader. And I think as for the story itself, you just got to make sure if it's a he say, she say situation, then it's got to be pretty balanced. But if, if you have evidence, you have everything else, then, then you know, the conviction stronger, you can present a story a different way. Okay, my next question is a bit simpler. So we got a lot of companies sending press release to the tech press. I do podcasting. They also send me the same press release, hoping that I'll cover as well. But usually 90% of the time, I just dump them into my trash bin. So I'm pretty curious. Like, I, wa- I want to know what companies should do before sending those information out. Because I think 90% of those it just ends up in the trash box. Yeah, I think it's also good for you all to lay out what exactly do you need in order to at least take the story from them with a, with a pinch of salt. I mean, they, they got to do, they do their whole work on, on each publication, right? Like there's a different approach. Uh, for us, we, our coverage runs gamut from simple news stories to, to deeper stories. So you just got to understand like what each publication does and the can has a different approach and so do we. And I I think firstly, you do your research. I think secondly, uh, there's this expectation still, even though the people are are savvier these days that that we're doing PR for them. And sometimes the story doesn't turn out that way. They have some wrong expectations from the get-go. Yeah, I I think just knowing what each publication is is going after and what they consider a story, I think that's a good start, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Read the actual publication that you're pitching, right? Like, Jesus, sometimes people send us news stories and we don't write news stories. I'm sure it's the same at Tech in Asia. They'll probably email a journalist who only writes feature stories. That's a waste of time for everybody, right? So, yeah, I think, I, but I know it's difficult, right? If you're pitching a whole, a whole bunch of press. But I think I still think that there's, a, there's this focus on, like, quantity over, over quality. I think it's much better for PR people to think, Okay, so who are the four journalists that I really want to get to know? Who are the four journalists that I really want to write the story? Who's covering fintech or e-commerce, right? Don't pitch the guy that does the VC stories or whatever. It, it sounds really obvious, but I think that it's so driven by every quarter, we got this many stories, like we got 1,000 stories. Like nobody really cares. They'd much rather you landed the right story in, say, Tech in Asia or the Ken, right? Like that's worth a lot more than pointless sort of stories. So to me, like that's always been the, the big thing. And what Terrence said is just know the publication, no, the journalist, like he's got, he's, he's working with a team of, of over, over 20 people. We've got eight, right? There's different people who do, who do various you know, different stories and having a relationship with each one is, 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 is how it works. So to me, like that's always been easy advice, but I guess maybe not so easy to actually do. It's interesting, right? When they send out these press release, they obviously want a certain narrative to come to you. I'll give you one example oh, and then so maybe through this example, you, you can flesh this out. When companies announce their Series A, Series B round, telling everybody this is how much I'm valued. And then the obvious question everybody wants to know is, why are you valued this way? But it's something that they don't want to disclose. And they are not willing to bite as well. I, I, I think there's a, there's this, there are some of these, like what I call the stories of, you just want to tell the world how much you're valued and, and you want to tell your narrative, but they don't seem to want to be questioned, why are you valued that way? And I think this is something that I think maybe just to get your thoughts on, like in a situation like that, how would you think of the story and 
when you throw the questions back, is it is the angle more of trying to figure out what they are being valued, or is it more of whether their business model would work, or whether based on your observations, based on maybe someone in your media outlet that's covering a facet of this fast rising company's trajectory? By and large, it's not been an issue. I think. Funny me that this founder, uh, by the way, is now a unicorn. That's the company. Um, I think what was pretty upset with us for when we asked about revenue and and valuation, and basically his his stance was like, you know, no, you, you know, these private, you know, how dare you? you know, kind of, that was a tone. And thankfully, it doesn't doesn't happen a lot these days. I think people just understand what we do. And I think here it's important to emphasize that the PR person actually really helped to educate the CEO on what the media does, right? The media's role. When we ask these questions, it's usually to work on a deeper story and to really understand what the company does and educate the readers on, on that. That's where we're coming from, right? We know that those questions probably won't get answered, but we still have to ask. I, I think as because you never know, right? Some companies are, are more open about this than, than others. Uh, and, I, and also, I think these days, a lot more transparent, right? In Singapore, especially, but you have the revenue numbers are out there. Venture cap, you know, it's it's calculating the valuation for us, right? So, yeah, that's just my take on it. Even that, though, you get companies saying, "Oh no, the venture cap numbers are wrong because it doesn't account for." Okay, well, tell me why they're wrong, and they can't really explain because they have an entity somewhere. It's always very confusing. No, I agree. And it, honestly, if you asked, uh, if you were doing an interview with a with a founder. And you said, okay, so how much revenue do you make? And they answered you on this on the spot. You'd also be like, I don't know if I can run that because sometimes a number is based on like a month and it's multiplied by 12 or it's based on a week or even based on a day. There's sometimes the, the way that they calculate these numbers. And you know, like from companies, they have different kinds of stages that they're at. And when they're raising money, they go into like sprint mode so they can make their numbers a little, little bit higher. So I think even when companies do answer, I'm always in two minds. Okay, you could say the CEO said this, but doesn't mean that's actually fact. So I think it's, it's tricky. And I think also, I think as we've seen in the last few years, like valuation is always changing. I think there's a lot of companies now that are valued at over a billion dollars that you could have called it a couple of years ago because it was obvious, right? They're the ones that have raised more than anybody else. And so it's, it's natural that they get to that kind of valuation. So especially now that we're seeing exits and there, are, there have been some sales and there's obviously IPOs and there's facts that are going on. I think that's the, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? So you could write about a company when the valuation is 100 million or 400 million or a, a billion. But what does it mean in, in the end if that company doesn't actually get through? And I think we've seen companies that have done that. They've, they've made those kind of spectacles of raising big, big rounds and doing this and doing that and looking really splashy and media written about them. And they've ultimately they've gone bust or they've been sold for a, a really small fee. And so I think the valuation of the rounds is much less less relevant now. And, and hopefully we'll start to see like actual exits. And that's where you can judge a company and investors. Hmm. So this conversation is extremely timely because last week you see the collapse of a company called Aussie Media just by virtue of New York Times and a couple of outlets just reported on the story and the whole company collapsed. So I think this is the next question that comes in, right? Funding rounds, pretty standard. Eventually, everybody just wants the revenue number, but to every company, they are worried about if I tell everybody my revenues, then I can attract a whole swath of competitors coming in. That's number one. Or my competitors roughly can work out what my actual margins are. So I think that is one piece of that. 
And you should probably already know. I think most mm. companies would know who in their space is doing what. So it shouldn't be a big shock. Yeah. You think, right? Yeah. So no, sometimes actually I, I would suggest the opposite. Instead of getting the revenue number from them, I will ask their competitor, what do you think their revenue number is? Maybe that is the easier way to gauge whether it's fair or not. And then they were like, no, of course what he's saying is wrong. Then, oops, you just say the number. You sound like a journalist now. Nah, I'm not a journalist. I'm a media outlet owner. <laughs> now, we're coming back to the point, right? When you publish this expose or something damaging to a rising company, which or maybe a company in the midst of a financing round, what are the mechanisms that you engage a company for a response? Say one of these startup unicorns, you just uncover something really damaging and that is actually going to crush their series C, D, E, mezzanine round from SoftBank. What, yeah, what's the engagement <laughs> model is going to be like? I think it's a lot of stuff that we said put together. So obviously you, you as Terence and I said, you, you triangulate the information that you've got. You make sure that you can, but if somebody pushed you to say, where did you get this from? You've got something more reliable than Bob told me in the pub, right? You've got to have something like either the document some kind of evidence or a whole bunch of people, right? ideally someone going on the record with their name. And then, as we said, you give them some time. So you give them like two, three, four days to come back to you. You give them as much time as possible to answer you. And then if they haven't come back to you and you've got all the evidence, then you then you do that story. You know, it's never personal. And it's always a case of like, you know, if we don't do that, then Terrence and his team will. And obviously we want to do that story. So we would we would try and do it. So again, it's like balancing being being fair to companies uh, being accurate for your readers and obviously as a journalist like wanting to do that story first I'd say but do you see the type of like big data coming in now because for example you have Muddy Waters and I think in the case of Luckin Coffee there was an entire hedge fund funding uh, machine learning people to look at the data to work out exactly what Luckin Coffee's real revenue is versus the revenues that they inflated I haven't seen such a use case happening in Southeast Asia yet but maybe it's a good question to ask what happens when you start bringing technology into the game of reporting. I think probably more public companies. I'm surprised nobody's looked at C because I mean, C has grown like crazy. I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong, but I'm saying like, if you're looking for like a sensation story, then you usually do it for the companies that have grown like crazy. And whether it's like Shopee or Shopee Pay or, or Garena, like their growth is insane, right? I mean, they probably somebody is looking at those numbers. Like, I think that they, they, they don't look at it to do journalism stories. They look at it as investors, like, is this company like structured solidly? Is it a good bet for us? And I think that when they find that kind of information, then they pass it on to press or they or they publish it themselves. And so I think a lot of companies are going public here. You've got like Grab and, and others and their business models are not exactly ordinary. They're, they're always burning cash. And so I'm sure that you'll see a lot of reports on like Grab and others when they come through, because right now that data is very hard to get. You'd need like insurgency operation to get in there and find people who are working in Grab, who have access to the right kind of data just to know what's going on. So I think, yeah, that's going to be a function of more companies in, in this region going public because they will become under the spotlight more. Their data will be will be public too. So we'll have to see what that But isn't the, mecha- isn't the mechanism of going through a spec such that those numbers will never go out anyway? They have got some numbers, but it's just not really, I'm sure Terence will agree, it's not as detailed as you wanted. You're waiting a long time for this company to go public. You want to look through all the nooks and crannies of their of their business. And I think they've done a good job of being transparent to, to some point because they're doing a, a sort of a SPAC. But it's not really, I mean, I certainly was a bit underwhelmed by the amount of data that they shared to this point anyway. The data is so underwhelmed that I think the Uber S, S1 was actually far more give more data than I've seen as compared to the spec rounds data. 
just touching on the money water thing, I, I think it's a question of financial incentives. So they can invest so much, a lot of resources into the into scraping the data, doing that data analysis a lot, right? They, the stocks plunge, right? I think, you know, being cover enterprises, uh, we, it, it, it still comes down to bottom line for us, like, for tech in Asia to do something like that, Mardi Water report, like what will be the payoff from a commercial standpoint? The journalistic motivation is there, um, but to be able to get to that level, I, I think it's something we have to figure out, right? So what if we, we launch a surprising tier, right? You know, like $1,000 year or something like that. Right? And with that, you know, what, what kind of, products would that lead to uh could, could we actually start seeing that kind of show so i think i think that's something i'm quite excited about yeah the reason why people do such heavy due diligence on chinese companies is because they are listed in the u.s stock exchange and short selling is allowed in the u.s i don't think it's allowed in any stock exchange in asia pacific but i have to check the data point as well the incentives at least for southeast asia at the moment doesn't warrant th- that kind of investigative journalism Unless you are C, which is you are listed in the US, then there is the hedge funds there will probably be trying to look for alpha, either to short sell or to bet on you so that you grow larger, right? So the question becomes a little bit different. But this is where I want to get to the next question. The difference between the US and the rest of the world is the First Amendment. Okay, so we know libel laws, defamation laws in Asia favor the companies against the press. How do Asia media outlets cope with the challenges of providing evidence and what should be done? I think you have alluded to some of the mechanisms. I know John used to work for TechCrunch, which is very well protected by the First Amendment because they're a US company-based media platform. How, does that, how, how do we deal with this type of situation? I mean, people will still threaten you, right? If you, even if you work for a US company, they'll say like, oh, where you are. So like, you know, being in a different country, being in Singapore or Thailand or anywhere else, I don't think that protects you from the local laws just because you're working for an international outlet. So yeah, it's definitely tricky. And, and libel law in Thailand, they have actually gone after journalists, reported like factual stories with lots of evidence. But the law is such here that you can actually go after companies. I think everyone gets threats to some extent. Obviously, people aren't necessarily bailing you you know, a court order, but there, there is, there are some companies that won't hesitate to sort of point out that, you know, there are laws that well, protecting us if you write something that's that's wrong. It's impossible to say, right? Um, but as long as you stick to the sort of tenants that we mentioned, right, which is making sure that you back things up, giving companies adequate time. Um, I mean, we haven't had a lawsuit outside of India. Yeah, I mean, in, in India, there's a whole bunch, but that's a whole different story because Indian libel law is also insane. But in Southeast Asia, so far, we haven't had any, any suits. I mean, there's, for some stories, there are sort of threats. It does escalate to a certain level. But I think as long as you've covered the course of talents, which is like making sure that what you're writing is backed up by evidence, that you've given company the company a chance to answer, that counts for an awful lot. Because if you're running a story and they've had three or four days to answer you and they haven't answered you, or they've answered you in a way that's not that convincing, then that's actually a pretty good fit for you. And obviously, we have a legal team too. So we've done stories that are really contentious. We've also run it past the, the, the legal team. So touch wood, no, no issues yet. And I think there's no way that you can really be sure that you're never going to be sued. But I think if you stick to the, the things that we've outlined, then you're probably in a, in a pretty good spot, right? Terence, how about you? I, I would say, yeah, uh, I mean, you have some experience with it. Uh, 
it's, it's the, the risk of a lawsuit is low, I think. That's it's, true. Yeah, in, in, in our history, like we've had one instance where we had to apologize and take down an article. So that was with Nelsie. There was an instance we got a legal letter that somehow went to the post box, but they never sent us an email. Which it, so we just yeah ignore that. Um, not sure about the situation in other countries. Like there's civil defamation, there's criminal defamation. I don't know. In in the case of Singapore, criminal defamation is is something you have to worry about. But usually, if you're dealing with government and you make some allegations against government, generally, if you don't touch the government, you're not touching. I don't know, in Thailand's case, uh, the monarchy, you're probably on the safe side. And then you, you talk about businesses, right? If you write a sensitive story about the company. The civil defamation. I, in most cases, it's not worthwhile for the company to get into legal action. Just not worth. It's just not like yeah, yeah, too much okay, effort. Yeah. yeah, they use it as a threat, right? So we've had letters and this kind of stuff. Obviously, we take it seriously, but you think to yourself like. It's going to be a long time if you want to do this. Go down this route. There's multiple countries involved. Talking about years, and also it draws much more attention to the story that you've done. So for us, there'd be a big like silver lining, which would be like everyone knows the story that you've done because you are like suing the the person doing it. So I think a lot of it, like you say, is just it's like kind of to some kind of threat that people wave wave over you. And again, I don't want to I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to get sued. But I think that what we found from the limited experience that we've had in, in one and a half years of being in Southeast Asia is like companies will dangle it over you to try to make you not do something or to make you take down a story or something like that. And they don't really realize that it does more harm than good because if you take a story down, everyone knows about it. That becomes a, a story in itself. So usually we just sort of like, back and we point out that we've given them three days here were the answers that they that they gave us if it's more than that is it really a lawsuit usually again touch with it it fades out because they realize that it's not really worth taking it any further right yeah and i i find that yeah if we take those measures of, of just being empathetic and being reasonable it will resolve some of the emotion and lessen the odds the chances of a lawsuit before we go to the closing, I have one more question, and I think this is probably interesting because I want to look at some interesting situation in the US, and just wanted your point of view on it. The Peter Thiel versus Gawker case. What are your thoughts if a billionaire can leverage the same mechanism to shut down a press in Asia Pacific? It's a what if situation anyway. I, I think the that there has to be strong ground for it, and I'll just speak talk in the case of Singapore, right? If a billionaire wants to do that, right? Then I think firstly that the publication was to, to make a claim so serious and egregious, the lawsuit and the payoff from that lawsuit would be worthwhile. I could think it, of I one think the, when the H actually funded the one MDB, which eventually Wall Street Journal got the story as well. But the payment was actually done by the H in getting the actual sources that were required to actually expose that. That was probably the only time I've seen that they are almost being challenged to be shut down by the Malaysian government. Kudos to them, but they were funded by also a, a well-known businessman in Malaysia. So there's some dynamic there. But in the case of, let's say, it's being shut down, then how does that play out? I think for tech, it, it, it's a bit unlikely. I think Gorka was such a unique case. And also it was a time in the world where like social media wasn't wasn't so well used. When Gorka was first growing up, people did go to a, a, a website every morning to read what, what was on it. Whereas now you see what's in your social media feed and you don't tend to go to publications anymore. So I think it was a time and a place that Gorka became so popular. And there's the kind of gaudy style of their stories too. I, I think 
other press were the same. You know, TechCrunch was a bit like that as well. It was a bit edgy. I think that's gone. Um, there's less of the edgy kind of press. I mean, it's definitely a concern in Southeast Asia, right? You're looking at the Philippines and, you know, uh, Rappel has been a thorn in the government side for like a long, long time, right? And you see that there's all kinds of things that have happened to try to basically end that, that media outlet. I mean, Thailand's had similar stuff with anti-government press that have been forced off the air. I think for tech, it's not, hopefully not realistic that either of the publications that are here get closed down. But I, I do think that when there's more companies going public and stuff becomes more transparent and there's just more, there's more capital as well flowing in this region. I, th I think you'll see more c contentious stories and, and more contentious beats coming up. I think right now, these companies are small in, in, in relative size. Like they're, all, they're all private. Once you start seeing people's money flowing into them, them all being public, then I think that's where potentially like the sort of tech beat grows when you have the folks that are still covering startups and private companies and then the folks who are doing a bit more sort of meaty reporting and I know Terence, you know, saying that there's potential to do like a very high level product that's focused on like public companies. And I completely agree because there's a massive appetite for public companies. People really want to read things about, about C and about other companies because frankly, the coverage isn't there. And so that's the kind of situation where I think the Gorka thing is very unique, but you can imagine that there would be some very rich businessmen saying, why does this publication keep, keep poking around in our finances, making us look bad? And I think that, those are the kind of combinations where you do get this kind of issue so i don't think it'll be it will be the same thing as gorka but yeah potentially there could be in five or, t or ten years there could be some publication that there's a real pain that's under under pressure from these companies perhaps mm. who knows what would you all like to have in a decade's time so we will project 10 years ahead now because we talk about the last 10 years about the trials and tribulations of covering the region and the challenges as well which i hope that i fleshed it out during this conversation but what would 10 years from now look like in, in terms of what the companies yeah. or the press? In the press. Yeah. Think? What would you want to see? Yeah. I think, I generally think that the last few years, it's been great to see like the deeper reporting. And I think like Tech and Asia have done a good job. I think we, we're doing a good job too. And I think there's much more of a focus on going beyond the numbers and the, and the narratives that companies are g giving you. And I think that's only just, that's only just getting started because one, Media isn't doing uh, sub-funded reporting yet. If you're looking at the big publications, they're not really doing it yet. So there, there's one thing. And two is that tech still hasn't become like a huge topic yet for media companies. I think there's no doubt that the region's going to grow and you're going to see billion dollar companies now becoming 10, 20, 50 billion dollar companies next, right? So basically what C's done in the last two years is what other companies will do over the next five to 10. So do you have some massive companies here? As long as there's journalists and there's press that are keeping them under watch or keeping them accountable, then I think that we're in a good spot. So in 10 years time, God knows what, you'll be reading through your VR goggles or whatever. I'm not sure what it looks like, but as long as there, there is that kind of spirit of folks like Terence and like me and like our teams who are saying, okay, the company is saying this, but let's really look at what's actually going on. Then I think that we're going to be in a good spot. Terence, you have the last word here. Yeah, I think diversity is good. I think more checks on tech companies will be good. Tech companies are just going to get more people that are going to be able to, to expose and bring to light the flip side of tech, right? Rather than the, the, the financial incentives and the returns and flesh out, really fleshing out what the impact on society. I, I think the Ken's doing a good job with that. I think, you know, we're, we're trying as well. So it's, it's yeah, so I, I think it's going to be, I think more diversity will be good. I hope that media companies covering tech will be able to stand and have the resources they need to, to pursue the kind of journalism that the region deserves. Different approaches, like we're barely scratching the surface, right, in terms of what journalism can, can be and do. So there's a lot more avenues to explore. And I think, you know, we're just at the beginning.
So thank you very much, Terence and John. I think this conversation is really great and continue to have your Twitter conversations because that might be inspiration for new discussions that might come out in the future. Just a quick closing recommendations, anyone? Maybe Terence, you want to go? Yeah, I, I was reading about the metaverse lately. <laughs> Hairy topic. But there's this really good primer by Matthew Ball. I'm not sure if you guys came across that. Really breaks down what the metaverse is supposed to be. There's this section on payments and how blockchain and crypto intersect with the metaverse and, and why Apple and Google, quote unquote, ego companies, are preventing the metaverse from truly taking out. So I, I thought it was a, a pretty eloquent take on the, the topic. Probably the, the best one I've seen. So check that out. That I always forget to bring something for this part of the conversation. <laughs> I to to you like if you like media, like the Athletic is to me like the most interesting media company at the moment. Obviously, it's not tech; it's it's sports, and uh, it's not just the fact that they do amazing work. They also they've also spent a truckload of money. I think they just there's a story that they burned I think a hundred million dollars in the last two years or something like that. Which when when you in in media terms, you're basically just paying for someone's salary. So it's it's tough to burn that much money that that quickly. And they're supposed to be going public soon. It's a weird recommendation, but I think if you like sports, like Athletic is absolute number one. And if you like media, it's also an interesting story to watch because I, I can't remember a company spending so much and having so much ambition. So to see what actually comes of that business in the end is going to be interesting. Where can our audience find the both of you? And please feel free to plug your media outlets for subscriptions. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, the usual channels. I, I think Tech in Asia, I should say it's on the tin, really focus on tech. We've done deep dives on C, on X to Infinity. Branching out into all areas, uh, just at the beginning, I think you subscribe now. We are, we're definitely in expansion mode. We're going to invest in more content, more just more deep dives, more news, just the whole gamut. So subscribe. Thank you. Good plug. I'm on um, Twitter also and LinkedIn. And we're so the Ken, we are subscription media. We just publish one story per day. So we don't cover like the, the funding rounds we talked about or other such things. We try to get into the detail, into the nub of what's going on and uh, covering study stage. And we also have a sister company in India. Our subscribers can, can access either sub or potentially both. And yeah, we just try to give you, give people something interesting to read about tech and business every day. Mm. We'll continue to talk to you all on your stories at some point and thank you for this conversation and I think it really sh shares a glimpse into how media reporting and coverage is done in the Asia-Pacific. Thank you all. Yep, thanks, thanks for having us. Cheers.